If you just came in, just one more kind of advanced warning. We will be talking about, frankly, about sex and gender today. So if there are things you would prefer your kids not to hear for the first time from me, but from you, I would strongly urge you to put them in their class. So Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5. The whole theme of the book of Ephesians is walking in the riches of God's grace, and we have been looking at, we've covered the first three chapters, we looked at those riches. And now, uh, starting in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, we're looking at walking worthy, living up to our name. We are in Christ, and this is what life in Christ looks like. And so, Paul has been getting up close and personal with us about our conduct and how it needs to change if we're going to live a worthy Christian life. Now, Paul's method for teaching us this is threefold. He's going to point out things we need to stop doing concerning certain behaviors. We need to stop behaving according to the self-life mindset. Secondly, we need to let God renew our thinking in those areas. And then thirdly, we need to put on the kind of conduct that God recreated us for. And so we have been covering topics ranging from honesty to handling anger correctly, to hard work, to good communication, to good attitudes towards others. And then lastly, two weeks ago, we left off with the topic of forgiving others. This morning, Paul is going to step into the realm of purity and possessions to very sensitive areas that we must address if we're going to live a worthy Christian life. So chapter five, I'm going to read verses one and two, and then we'll pick up our study in verses three through seven. Paul says in verse one of chapter five, be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. In verse 3, he starts off with this word, but. Verses 1 and 2, he says, this is how Jesus loved you and what he did for you and how he displayed that love. But these things, they are not love. These behaviors are not like the love Jesus showed us. These behaviors are rooted in selfishness. And he starts off with the first one, he says, fornication. The word here, fornication, is an interesting word because it has a broad meaning and a specific meaning. In its broad meaning, it means to engage in any kind of sexual sin. And in specific meaning, it usually refers to harlotry or prostitution. So it is used in the broad sense here because it's not listed alongside other types of sexual sins. So we know that Paul's kind of using it in that broad way. Sometimes when you find it in a list with other sexual sins, that's how you know he's getting more specific. But here he's just painting a very broad brush, any and all kinds of sexual sin. Any type of sexual activity with a person that is outside the boundaries God has set for sex. In addition to that, he said also, all uncleanness. 
The word means any and all kind of morally impure behavior. This word was used to refer to any kind of dirty moral behavior. So it's not just crossing sexual boundaries that God sets for sex with another person, but any other areas where God has set boundaries that you're going to cross that may not involve another person. When we look at our current culture today, things like pornography or being at a venue that is, arouses your sexual fantasies, masturbation, these are some of the behaviors that would fall into this category, that they're outside the boundaries that God created for sex. Now, he mentions next, or covetous, and the word or means it's something wrong, it's just as wrong, but it's not in the realm of sex. And so we'll cover covetous in a second, but I'd like to deal with these first two since they are so closely tied together. Paul says, fornication and all uncleanness, let it not once be named among you as become saints. The phrase let it not be once named means you must never let it be mentioned in your church. I should never be hearing about this going on in your church as is proper and right. It's proper and right for us to not have this going on in our church because it's prop, that's the proper and right way for saints to live. Who's a saint? Well, if you're in Christ, you're a saint. The saint is those who have been set apart for God's use. Those who have all the riches that we described in the first three chapters. Those who are called to walk worthy of the riches we have. Our goal as a church body that has been united by Jesus and is moving toward maturity is that these behaviors would never be associated with our church. These behaviors would never be associated with Calvary Chapel Orlando. Now, that means if that's the goal of our church, that means our goal as individuals needs to be that these behaviors aren't a part of our personal life. Sadly, the numbers say that that is not the case in the church in general. A study on pornography usage in December 2021 found the following results. Among Christian men aged 18 to 30, 77% look at pornography monthly. 36% view it daily. 32% admit to being addicted to it, while another 12% think they might be. Among Christian men aged 31 to 49, 77% looked at pornography at work in the last three months. 64% view it monthly, and 18% admit to being addicted with another 8% thinking they might be. The report showed that 55% of married Christian men look at pornography monthly, and that 35% of married Christian men have had an extramarital affair. A Barner study from 2020 of December found some other kinds of results, different numbers. They had these numbers, but they also had some additional numbers. This Barna study found that 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for pornography at least once a month. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. That means 87% do. 25% of married women say they watch pornography at least once a month. One more report. A relevant magazine study in May 19th of 2022, so this came out just a few weeks ago, it found these results. 51% of women in Christian colleges admit to watching porn occasionally. 70% of those women either watched pornography or had a sexual hookup in the last 12 
months. These numbers across the board, men and women in the church, show that a large portion of Christians are living the direct opposite of what Paul said here, the direct opposite of Paul's exhortation. It is being mentioned in our churches. And this needs to change because uncleanness is a massive gateway to sexual sin. Did you know that pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%? Did you know that 56% of American divorces involve one party having, quote, an obsessive interest in pornographic websites? Paul ties these two behaviors because they do go hand in hand. Very often people think, well, I'm not cheating on my spouse. I'm just looking at something or I'm just engaging in something. But obsessing over how that character in the novel you're reading or that character in the TV show you watch is so much better than your husband is just as much uncleanness as exposing yourself to people who are performing sexual acts on a screen. They are all pornography. They are all sexual sin. I'm sorry, they all lead to sexual sin in some way. And so I ask you this morning, are you involved sexually with someone that is outside God's boundaries? Are you involved in pornography or or any other kind of dirty behavior? Because if either of those words describe where you're at this morning, do not leave without saying, God, I, I confess. I confess the way I'm thinking about sex or pornography or romance is wrong. And I want you to renew my mind in this area. I'm choosing to put off those things and I'm choosing to start thinking about how you think about those things. Now, covetousness, which he also says should never be mentioned in the church. Later on in verse 5, it mentions, nor a covetous man who is an idolater. So, it, it equates it to idolatry. So, not only is sexual impurity, impurity is something that shouldn't be a part of our lives, but idolatry should not be a part of any Christian's life. The word covetousness here means a greedy desire to acquire more material possessions. And if covetousness is that greedy desire to, if possessions is something you're living for, is something that you're seeking to obtain, it's a goal in your life, then what Paul's trying to tell us is that the expenses incurred by a greedy desire to get more, they do not occur in a vacuum. It is selfish behavior. The cost is not just the price tag of the thing you are purchasing to make it your possession. Because when acquiring things becomes more important to me than the people in my life, I treat those people wrongly and often as obstacles to what I'm trying to get. And so I ask you again this morning, is the desire to get more possessions a driving force in your life? If it is, don't leave this morning the same way you came in. Don't leave without saying, God, I confess that the way I think about gaining wealth is wrong. I want you to renew my mind on this topic. I I choose to put that off and to start thinking about wealth the way you do. Now, whether the issue isn't your issue that you're struggling with this morning is in the realm of impurity or covetousness, until you and I make that kind of confession, those things will be a part of your life. And as a result, you will not be loving those who are around you. Don't listen to the lie of the enemy who tells you, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell your spouse about this. Don't tell a brother or sister about this. Next time will be better. You'll figure it out. You can do this. 
That is the lie that the enemy tells us and that we tell ourselves. And the Bible says that when we walk in that kind of darkness and try to cover up our sins, it says we don't prosper. On the other hand, whosoever confesses and forsakes his sins finds mercy. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, Christ's blood is cleansing us and we're in fellowship with God, we're in fellowship with others, and we can find change. If you don't make that kind of confession, you will continue to operate in the self-life and you won't end up living a life that's worthy of who Jesus recreated you and me to be. Now in verse four, Paul adds some other things that should never be mentioned about a Christian. He says, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Filthiness, it just means obscene behavior. It means shameless, indecent conduct. And of course, again, usually in the realm of sexuality. Humanity has always pushed at God's definition of what's moral and decent as it concerns sexuality. So, what is God's definition of moral, decent sexuality. Well, we see in the beginning how God created man and woman. It says in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God created only two genders, male and female. Any physical or mental deviations from God's creation of two genders came about as a result of the fall. This is how God originally designed, created, Anything else came about as a result of the fall. For example, it is possible for a child to be born with multiple external genital organs or even extra chromosomes. But even in those cases, when they do all of the biological work, they are either male or female. The externals might be confusing, but at the core of who they are, they're still either male or female. And in addition to that, each of those conditions are all considered physical disorders because they all come with other health conditions. So the result of the fall is that sometimes our DNA is warped. We're living in fallen bodies now. And so sometimes physically things are different. That's not the way God designed it though. And even still, even though externally things might look confusing, DNA wise, you're still either male or female. You may have heard the word hermaphrodite thrown around. There is no such thing as a human hermaphrodite. They don't exist, all right? They actually have the biological scientific term is pseudo-hermaphrodite because it just looks that way. But they don't actually have the DNA that is both. You're either male or female. Now, those physical cases that are deviations that someone can't help, they are a minute percentage compared to how most children are born. That means that the majority of people who deviate from saying, well, I'm I'm male or female, it means that it is a mental deviation. It is a choice. That means that the majority of people who struggle with feeling, well, I'm male, but I, I think I'm a female, or vice versa, that they are fighting against the idea that God sets the boundaries of who we are. If you're 
in that boat this morning, that's the battle you're facing. You are fighting not against who you really are, but you are fighting against how God has set the boundaries of who you and I are. And to reject those boundaries, no matter how difficult the struggle, it is sin. Just like any other boundary God sets for our behavior. Now, that is why a man dressing up like a woman or vice versa or some other crossing of boundaries has often been labeled through history as obscene or indecent behavior. It's why when you have a little one and they see it, they are confused because it's not decent. It is obscene behavior. Now, people say, well, I'm not attracted to the opposite sex. There's nothing wrong with being a man who's not attracted to women or a woman who's not attracted to a man. Jesus explained that God creates some of us to not pursue marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, it tells us very clearly. The disciples, when Jesus gave a very serious teaching on the commitment of marriage and how it's to be a permanent thing in this life, the disciples said, well, if that's the case, if I'm stuck with my wife, then better not get married. Gotta love those guys. They think so much like us. I identify with them. But Jesus said, well, all men cannot receive the saying, what you've just said, except those to whom it's given. I mean, so Jesus says, well, some people are called to that. Some people are given to live that kind of life. For there are some eunuchs who were born so from their mother's wombs. We address that. There are some who they physically, the way they're born, they, they don't have the capacity to, to reproduce. Then he says, there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. I'm not going to describe what that means. But I would throw out at you that it's funny how we think, sad, not funny. It's interesting and sadly interesting how we think we have evolved and progressed better than past centuries and past cultures when now we're doing the very same thing to our kids but we're making them something other than they are. So sometimes it's out of your control. Sometimes someone else inflicts this upon you. And then Jesus says there are eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. There are those who they are attracted to other people, uh, people of the opposite sex, but they decide, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get married. I'm going to dedicate my life to the kingdom of heaven, to serve in the Lord. Jesus says, he that's able to receive it, let him receive it. If that's what God's called you to be, then you need to receive that. You don't need to go look for something else that's well, different than what you're not attracted to. You're not supposed to go around looking for something you are attracted to. You're supposed to receive the call that God has set upon your life. And so if you believe that that describes you this morning, you say, well, I'm a man, I'm not attracted to women. Well, then you need to receive that calling from God, not go find something you are attracted to. And if that does not describe you, then you need to stay within God's boundaries for sexuality. Anything else, anything else is a decision to embrace filthiness, which should never be mentioned among Christians. And so I ask you this morning, do you need to put off the self-life mindset that says you get to determine sexual boundaries for yourself? Do you need to let God change your thinking on sexual and gender boundaries that he's set? Do you need to put off indecent behavior and put on decent behavior? If you do, you need to do that this morning. 
Next, Paul mentions neither filthiness nor foolish talking. The word in the Greek, and I almost never do this, but this one made me chuckle, is morologia, which literally translates to moron speech. It means mentally dull words, which we would normally think, okay, someone maybe who's not intelligent. But the word here doesn't refer to intellectual foolishness, but ethical foolishness. For example, in Psalm 14.1, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Those are foolish words. It's ethical foolishness. Um, Mentally dull words are equivalent to godless words. In other words, words that don't take God into account and therefore are outside the boundaries God has set for speech. Therefore, this includes any kind of communication designed not just to detract from the Lord, but also to start a debate or an argument about things that aren't important. We have lots of morologia in our culture. People want to argue about everything, and a lot of them don't matter. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, interestingly enough, Paul writing to pastor Timothy, he says, Timothy, this is how I want you to lead in your church. He says in 2 Timothy 2.23, but foolish and ignorant disputes avoid, knowing that they do produce strifes. Don't get involved in dumb arguments and don't let your congregation do it. Shouldn't be mentioned once in the church. Shouldn't be getting in those types of arguments that the world likes to get into. Titus chapter 3, another pastor that Paul's telling how to be a pastor, he says the same thing in Titus 3.9, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law for they are unprofitable and they are vain, empty, worthless, waste of time, moral logia. In Psalm 141 verse 3, David, I love his prayer here. He says, Lord, put a, put a guard on my mouth. He says, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Christians are supposed to watch what they say, abiding by God's boundaries on communication. Does that describe you this morning? Are you someone who asks God to put a guard on your mouth and you don't engage in, in arguments and disputes that we should not be having? There are things worth fighting for. A lot of the things that people argue about in church today are not things worth fighting for. So does that describe you? Or do you need to put off foolish talking? Next, Paul mentions jesting. Some of your Bibles might translate that coarse jesting. And that's fine. Because it means polished and witty speech that is used as the instrument for sin. Now, certainly this refers to indecent jokes and vulgar or inappropriate conversation. It's about conversation that you shouldn't be having with someone that's not your spouse in the work environment. While it all includes all of those things, it also includes humor that is designed to wound someone or to trap them into looking foolish. It's interesting when you see a kid realize for the first time that they have the capacity to say things that gets a response from others. When they've got that quick wit and they see the power they wield with their words, that they can get a reaction from people, that they laugh, they have power with their words. It can be intoxicating when you realize that in a way that leads a person into this type of sin. But anytime my quick wit is being used inappropriately, whether it's to 
have that flirty thing that you say that makes the, the gal's heart flutter or makes the guy kind of perk up, or whether it's the insult. Either way, when our quick wit is being used inappropriately, it's not being used, it's not using that God-given wit in a worthy way. So Paul says, it's not which are not convenient. None of these things are right or proper. That's what that word convenient means. None of these things are right or proper for a Christian. Ethically foolish speech and vulgar speech are not right and proper in any Christian's mouth. And so if you are in Christ, you need to put those things off. You need to say, God, I know this is wrong and I'm not going to do it anymore. You need to let God change your thinking about the words that come out of your mouth and you need to start using different kind of communication. And Paul tells us what kind at the end of the verse, but rather, he says, giving of thanks. Giving of thanks means to express gratitude for blessings or for benefits. It takes very little effort to complain. Anyone can do it. Anyone can do it and be good at it. It's the lowest common denominator of communication because you can always meet somebody there. If you complain about something, you can always meet with the person across from you because they've got something they can complain about too. All of us do. Anyone can connect another person on that level. It's easy to laugh at a witty comment at someone else's expense or a comical but dirty joke. It's easy to feel the tingle of excitement when you engage with a person in witty sexual banter and they're not your spouse. But ease of access whether it's this kind of communication or complaining, does not equate to depth of connection with a person. Instead, imagine a relationship where God's grace to you and the grace that he offers to others is the main topic of conversation when you discuss the challenges that you experience in your life, your marriage, your job. Imagine conversation where you talk about the actual living of life, both in the joys you share and the comradeship you have and how you're tackling life's challenges. That is a worthy personal life. That's worthy living. That's meaningful living. Now, the self-life mindset toward communication says, nobody's gonna tell me what I can and can't say. I have good reasons for saying what I say and I'm not gonna pretend to be thankful when in reality, I'm miserable. Being thankful isn't a feeling. Do you know what... I have found the times that thankfulness is most appropriate for me is the times when I just want to complain to the Lord. The times when I'm just like, oh, God, I can't. And then I'm like, well, that's not true. I can do all things for Christ who strengthens me, so let's stop there. And then I just start telling the Lord what I'm thankful for. Changes perspective immediately. It's not about a feeling. Thankfulness, actually being thankful, is the most important when you don't feel thankful. Because being thankful is a decision. You're putting on something when you're putting off complaining. Now, if your internal reaction to Paul's words here is, well, nobody's going to tell me what to say and do, <laughs> you need to put that self-life mindset off. You need to let God renew your thinking on the topic. And you need to put on Christ, who he only spoke when his father told him to speak. You need to put off being divisive with your words and decide to be thankful with your words. You need to put off being inappropriate and you need to decide to bless the Lord and others with your words. 
Do you need to do that this morning? Now, before we move into verse 5, I want to bring up just one other topic. Because I think giving of thanks is the answer to all of these things, including fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. I think it applies to all of them. Verbally, it does. Linguistically, it does here. So much of sexual sin, temptation, stems from the fact that we are dissatisfied. I'm dissatisfied with my intimate life with my spouse. I'm dissatisfied with the romance in my life. I'm dissatisfied with what I feel like I need to have to be fulfilled sexually. I'm dissatisfied with who I am. I'm dissatisfied with my surroundings. I'm dissatisfied with the things I have. Being thankful is the solution, the thing we need to put on when we put these things off. That's the right way to respond to all these situations that we're responding the wrong way. When we say, well, but I want to be in love, or I want to feel love, and I want to experience love. Okay, that's fine. I, I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be loved. But anytime we decide to define love or passion or romance in a way that can only be true under certain circumstances means that definition is false. I would ask you a question. Are you telling me that the biblical promise of Intimacy in marriage, true intimacy, as it's described in Genesis, of, of, of romance in marriage and of love that it can only be experienced in how someone else or you determine sexual gratification to be? Are you telling me you cannot experience love or romance or intimacy with a spouse that maybe something might happen to them physically and they're unable to engage with you in all those ways physically? We have warped our meaning of love. We have warped our meaning of passion. We have warped our meaning of romance. We have warped the meaning of love. And the solution to that, the, what you need to put on is thankfulness. It's much different to sit there and be bitter and grumpy because Maybe the way you hoped a romantic evening would turn out with your spouse didn't turn out maybe like you hoped it would. And to be all grumpy and then to wake up grumpy, that's a whole different way of approaching your sexual relationship with your spouse than it is looking over and going, Lord, I'm so thankful that there's somebody who actually wants to sleep next to me most days. Because I know I don't like sleeping with me most days. We need to change our thinking on sex on romance, on passion, on love. If we're going to be able to embrace true biblical sexuality, purity, and we need to do it everything else with our possessions and with our interactions and communication. Now, why does Paul say that these things, they're not love at all? He goes, and, and why they should not be part of our lives, should never be named in our churches and therefore not ever once named in our personal lives? Because he says, for this you know. He says, I'm not telling you anything new. Paul says, this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Paul started off discussing worthy personal life in chapter 4, verse 17, by explaining there's a difference how a Christian and an unbeliever approaches life. An unbeliever makes decisions like this, thinks like this, and approaches life like this. A Christian has learned something different from Jesus. We make decisions and approach life and live life differently. And so he says, this you know. 
And this is why everything in verses 3 and 4 are not proper ever for a Christian to engage in. This you know. The word know there is two words. It's not just to know intellectually, but it means you know intellectually and you know by experience. We know from the Word of God where the boundaries are. We know from the Word of God that our lives are supposed to be different after we get saved, right? But we also know those things from our own hearts. We know that every Christian knows that things begin to change when you get saved. You're not the same person. You're alive to God now. You're in Christ now, and you have a new life. You see it in your own life where things begin to change, some slow, some fast. You see it in all the other people's lives around you. You're like, dude, that guy's walking with Jesus. Something changed. Understanding this in both our head and our hearts brings with it, though, the opposite side of that truth, which is when someone is lost, they stay the same. They're still lost, and they still live like the lost. And so Paul says, for this you know, there's a difference that no whoremonger, nor, he says, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, Christ and of God. The word there, no, means any, all, no exceptions. So it actually doesn't say no. It means for you, this you know, that any whoremonger, any unclean person, and any covetous man which is an idolater doesn't have part in heaven. These three words match the three behaviors that Paul mentioned in verse 3. Whoremonger is the same word as fornication. Same word. The only difference is it adds that a covetous person is an idolater. Colossians 3.5 also explains that idol worship isn't limited to bowing to a physical statue or a false god. That idolatry extends to anything that our soul is devoted to that usurps the place of God that he's supposed to have in my life. It's always idolatry. And those people who, that's how they conduct their lives. He goes, that's, they don't have any inheritance. Not the kingdom of Christ, nor the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of Christ? Well, that's, that's his earthly kingdom. Kingdom of God, it's heaven. Listen, we spent the first three chapters learning that the believer's inheritance is everything that belongs to Jesus, right? We're joint heirs with Christ. That includes his kingdom on earth and God's kingdom in heaven, but none of that belongs to an unbeliever. None of it. The lost live for self. Whether that self-life pursues sexual sin, morally impure behavior, or some other passion that usurps the place God should have in their lives, that's what a lost person does, which means a Christian should be different than that. A Christian does not live for self. A Christian instead pursues sexual purity. They pursue morally right behavior, and they pursue keeping God as the only God of their life. Now, why does Paul bring up that we know this in our head and in our hearts? He brings it up because the enemy wants to deceive you and me into rejecting what we know is true in order that we might not live a worthy personal life. He says in verse 6, let no man deceive you with vain words. Don't let yourself become deceived. To be deceived, it's when someone causes you to have a misleading or an erroneous view. When you've been deceived, it means someone else has caused you to have a misleading or an erroneous view on something. He says, don't let that happen to you through vain words. Vain words, it just means any kind of words that serve no purpose, words that are empty. Now, 
an example today of vain words is the very popular slogan, love is love. I cannot really give you more empty of a phrase. Okay, like if someone would say, tell me what love is, you can't define it with the word love. There is no way to describe a more empty, empty phrase. Love is love. It's a very common slogan. And it undoes the real meaning of love. Love is not love. Love is a word, a specific word that has a definition, and the definition has meaning. And when I decide to define love by verbalizing the word love a second time, that undoes the real meaning of love. And it morphs the real meaning of the word love into the idea that as long as I'm getting the companionship and affection I need, then the relationship I'm in cannot be wrong. It's love. Now, I didn't say that, that that's what that slogan means. I got that from an LGBTQ website, a magazine called Bustle, and they gave eight explanations of what love is love means from their own mouth. These are not my words. I'm not twisting their words. These are the direct words from this article in 2016 written in Bustle magazine. Number one, love is love means being able to love my wife in public, to not hide our love. Love is love, number two, means unity and the concept of being unified with a a group of people. Number three, love is love is an experience, a drive. It's everything. Number four, love is love means to believe in yourself. Number five, love is love means to feel connected with other people. Number six, love is love means to not sexually shame others. Number seven, love is love means to love how we want. Number eight, love is love means to celebrate differences. All eight of those concepts actually transform the meaning of the word love into its opposite, which is selfishness. What I want. But the Bible defines love as self-sacrifice, and it gives a very detailed description of that self-sacrifice in 1 Corinthians 13, four through eight. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not arrogant. It does not seek its own. It does not celebrate differences because it doesn't rejoice in what's wrong. It rejoices in the truth. And because God is love, we get a deeper understanding of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 by looking at God's character and conduct. And so when we look at many of the definitions in this article, they directly contradict 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. They directly contradict God's character and conduct and other things that God says in his word. Most of them, to be frank, are very empty, defining love in a way that gives the word zero meaning. Paul says, we must not let any person or any ideology cause us to have misleading or erroneous views where we put our trust in something empty. The slogan may be catchy, and maybe it gives you a rallying point to justify your wrong behavior, but that doesn't make it love. It doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it rich and deep and meaningful. And so, I urge you this morning, do not listen to any person or any ideology that tells you sexual sin isn't sin, that sexual sin is okay, that sexual sin is actually love, 
Do not listen to any person or any ideology that tells you that covetousness is okay, that indecent behavior is okay, or that godless words are okay, or that inappropriate joking is okay, or that a nasty wit is okay, because those behaviors are part of the reason that God is going to judge the lost. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things, what things? Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, jesting. Because of these things, he says, the wrath comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. The children of disobedience are the offspring who are unwilling to comply with God's authority. God created everybody. He loves everybody. But there are those who will bend the knee, and there are those who will be forced to bend the knee. There will be those who will yield and put their trust in Christ and those who resist and put their trust in themselves. That's who the sons of disobedience are. And he says it's because of these things that his wrath is coming upon them. The word here coming or comes, it means to be continually moving, continuously moving towards something, a destination. These things are inching God every time it happens closer and closer and closer to the time when his wrath has to do something. God's divine punishment, when God's angry judgment has to act. God is often charged with being uncaring toward the evils that our world experiences, but the Bible teaches otherwise. The Bible says in Psalm 711 that God is angry with the wicked every day. And because God is angry at the wicked every single day, every single day, rebellious humanity is inching closer to the time when God must act. Now, God, better than anyone, better than anyone, knows what will happen on the day his divine anger must act, when he must step in lest we destroy ourselves. But because he doesn't want anyone to perish, he waits so that more will repent and be rescued. Now, since these things that we've been talking about this morning are the behaviors that inch God closer to that day, how could God, under any circumstance, ever be okay with any of them? He never has been and he never will be. Don't let anyone or any ideology convince you otherwise. Which means, if you are a Christian, you need to stay away, as far away as possible from these behaviors. Verse 7, be not you therefore partakers with them. Literally, it means stop becoming partners with these things. With the unbelievers doing these things, stop. The Ephesian Christians had allowed themselves to lapse into old vices. And Paul says, you guys need to stop. You need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to put it off. You need to put off every kind of sexual sin and uncleanness. You need to put off every form of covetousness. You need to put off every kind of indecent behavior and speech. And you need to let God change your thinking about sex, about possessions, and about what is proper behavior and communication. You need to put on things like self-control. You need to put on contentment. You need to put on thankfulness. And you need to put on purity in your conduct and your speech. And Paul is saying the same thing to us this morning. If you have these things going on in your life, you need to put them off, and you need to put on the right things. You need to let God renew your thinking. Proverbs 23, 7 says, and as the worship team comes up to close us out because I need to get done. Proverbs 23, 7 says, 
As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Wrong behavior always stems from wrong thinking. And so that means that to correct our behavior, we need to acknowledge our wrong thinking. If you are struggling with sexual sin or dissatisfaction in your marriage or lust or pornography or something else, it is very likely that you have wrong ideas about how sex is supposed to work, what makes it good, and what you think you need. That means you need to put that off. You need to let God change your thinking in those areas, and you need to put on self-control in its place. You need to put on thankfulness for your spouse in its place. If you are struggling with covetousness, it is very likely that you have wrong ideas about happiness, about success, and about what makes life worth living. You need to put that off, and you need to let God change your thinking in those areas, and then put on contentment. If you are struggling with acting indecently or having a potty mouth or speaking useless words, it is very likely that you have wrong ideas about who and what is supposed to govern your speech and conduct. You need to put that off and let God change your thinking in those areas so that you can put on humility and a submissive heart. How do you do that? It's really simple. We're gonna sing a song. I didn't know what it was first service. I know what it is now, but it's about giving your whole heart to God. We're gonna sing a song this morning about giving our whole heart to God, which means in that time, you need to ask the Lord to search your heart. Ask him to show you where your thinking is wrong. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till you get home. Ask him to show you right now. Do I have wrong thinking about my spouse, about sex, about possessions, whatever it is that God put his finger on this morning? And then when he tells you, respond appropriately. Make a decision Tell the Lord, I am choosing to stop thinking that way and behaving that way. And then start digging into God's word so he can renew your thinking. Replace the wrong thinking with correct thinking. And when God shows you the new way to think, put on that new way of thinking with all the new behaviors that come with it. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, our prayer this morning is simple. Show us Search us like David prayed. Search our hearts, Lord. See if there be any wicked way in us and lead us on your way everlasting. We don't want to be on the wrong path. We don't want to be deceiving ourselves or being deceived by others. So show us this morning if there's any part of our thinking that is wrong in these areas of purity and regarding our possessions. Show us, Lord, if there's impurity and idolatry in our hearts and in our minds. And then, Lord, for every person who you're gonna speak to you now. I pray that as they commit to you to put that off and to put on a new way of thinking, I pray that you would show them through your word the correct way to think. In Jesus' name, amen.